Mr. Speaker. We come now to questions for oral answer. The first in the name of Jamie Arbuckle. Mr Speaker, to the Associate Minister of Health, what updates can she provide, if any, on the repeal of the Fewer Periodics Products Act 2023? Honourable Casey Costello. Mr Speaker, the Government has committed to begin work to repeal the Therapeutic Products Act 2023 within its first 100 days. I will be taking a paper to Cabinet next week seeking approval to progress this work. Excellent. Supplementary. Why does the Minister want to repeal the Therapeutics Products Act? Mr Speaker, the Therapeutic Products Act was not fit for purpose. Appropriate regulation of medicines and medical devices is vital to ensure that these products do what they claim are highly high quality and that product approval pathways do not make them inaccessible or unaffordable. We also know that the current fragmented and, fragmented and outdated approach to the regulation of natural health products means that New Zealand is missing out on a significant proportion of, of opportunity to grow jobs and the economy. We, we need to develop a fit-for-purpose regulatory system for both. Supplementary. Will repealing the Therapeutics Product Act adversely impact medical safety or health outcomes of New Zealanders? Yes. Mr Speaker. <laughs> The Act has a commencement date of 1 September 2026, so no changes are required from the health sector or industry. I have received advice that implementing the changes required to meet the commencement date would have been extremely challenging. This poses the real possibility of poor outcomes for New Zealanders. Supplementary. How does the Minister intend to progress work on replacing the Therapeutics Products Act? Mr Speaker. The Government has an opportunity to replace the Therapeutics Products Act with legislation that protects consumers without creating unnecessary red tape on industry. We know that communities, the health sector and industry have concerns and we intend to listen to them, to those concerns as we develop new proposals. Supplementary, right on board, Peters. So will Big Pharma that's tried to control this part of the market in New Zealand for the last two and a half decades be finally again put back in its place? Here, here. Mr Speaker, we are confident we will have effective legislation that will deliver good outcomes. Globalisation. Question. <laughs> Question number two, in the name of the Right Honourable Chris Hipkins. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, does he stand by all of his government statements and actions? Uh, yes, I do. And in particular, I stand by the government's action to conduct a ministerial inquiry into problems within the school property system. Problems driven by a culture of mismanagement under the previous government's Ministers of Education, which have resulted in hundreds of projects facing huge escalations in both cost and scope. And I also appreciate the member's most recent supportive remarks, correcting earlier comments from Jan Tanetti denying there was even a problem. This government stands by all of its actions to address the shocking educational outcomes delivered by that member's government. Supplementary question, Mr Speaker. Is it correct that school property capital expenditure for the botany electorate increased from $3.7 million in 2017 to $11.9 million in 2022? If so, which of those projects does he believe were of low value? Detail, detail. <laughs> If the member would like to ask a specific question, I can show I can give him a proper answer for that. But what I'd just say to you is, but what I'd say to you, what I'd say to you is 350 schools were misled by the previous government. 
We're going to rescope your school. We're going to redesign it. 20 before Christmas, 250, now 350, billions of dollars, lots of promises, no delivery, underfunded, pattern of behaviour we've seen many, many times. What nonsense. Uh, Mr Speaker, does he agree with Christopher Luxon on the smoke-free law changes made by the previous government? We've been really supportive. Anything to remove, you know, smoking harm, I think, is a good thing. Absolutely. Supplementary question. When he stated, quote, we believe we can lower smoking rates with the legislation that exists today, end quote, had he seen the Treasury advice that repealing the Smoke-Free Environments Act changes will net the government $500 million a year in extra revenue with more people smoking for longer? What I've seen is the results from the last year, which has seen daily smokers go from 8.6 to 6.8% just in the last 12 months with the legislation that we're going to re-adopt. Supplementary question. Did his Associate Minister of Health advise Cabinet that the Ministry of Health estimated rolling back smoke-free law changes would cost the health system an estimated $5 billion and that smoking currently contributes to an average of 12 deaths per day in New Zealand? If not, why not? Our Associate Health Minister is very committed to lowering smoking rates. The smoking legislation that we've seen over the last decade has actually halved daily smoking in this country. We are very confident that this will continue to lower smoking rates across this country. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Point of order. A point of order, Right Honourable Chris Hipkins. Mr Speaker, my question was about the advice that Cabinet received from the Associate Minister of Health. The Prime Minister didn't address that. Well, I'm sure that he will if he's asked again. You can ask again with no penalty to you. Did his Associate Minister of Health advise Cabinet that the Ministry of Health estimates that rolling back smoke-free law changes will cost the health system an estimated $5 billion and that smoking currently contributes to an average of 12 deaths per day in New Zealand? If not, why not? Our decision is very clear. We're going to adopt the existing legislation that previously existed just a month before the election that has driven smoking rates down. Smoking rates are going to continue to fall under the existing legislation that we're going to readopt. Mr Speaker, it wasn't a difficult question. It asked what the Associate Minister of Health had advised Cabinet with regard to the cost and the number of people who die per day from smoking, and the Prime Minister hasn't addressed either of those well, issues. Well, you may not think so. I, I assume that that was part of the advice that you got to lead to the answer. But how, the Prime Minister, why don't, uh, why don't the Prime Minister... Why doesn't the Prime Minister... That's not you. The Prime Minister... Uh, answer that one more time. Well, sorry, sorry, apologies. I apologise to the member because I realise he's only at the midpoint of his career, so it could happen. Anyway. Look, unlike the previous government, we don't discuss stuff that happens in Cabinet, unlike Stuart Nash. Uh, our point of order. Prime Ministers have regularly in this House been asked what advice Ministers have provided to Cabinet and have given answers on that. Yes, previously. He just said they don't do it. Supplementary question. Supplementary question, right on Mr. Peters. Is the Prime Minister aware that the legislation that's seen the most dramatic change in the decrease in smoking levels in this country, that law was written by New Zealand First and not these people over here that are screaming about it right here, right now? Yeah, first part of the question and is good. Point of order. Point of order. Point of order. Honourable David Parker. In respect of your uh, most recent ruling, sir, uh, there's a difference between advice that a could you, government... Could you speak more into your microphone, if you wouldn't mind? I'm very... I think the microphone might be off. I don't think it is. It just needs to be up a bit. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. 
As to your point of order, sir, the, uh, there's a difference between advice that is provided to Cabinet and Cabinet discussions on what is before it. There is no uh, obligation on the Government to uh, disclose the discussions in a Cabinet made by different Cabinet Ministers, but Ministers can be asked on what information was provided to Cabinet. They can, and in due course they're likely to release it. They don't have to release it here in the House. Uh, and further to that point, it wasn't my point of order. Right on with Chris Hipkins. Point of, point of order, Mr Speaker. You, your, um, your intervention there may well have been an acceptable answer for the Prime Minister to give. Uh, it's not exactly a ruling, though. The Prime Minister is effectively refusing to answer the question. Well, to the first point, uh, part of your um, uh, point of order, you're quite right. I'm an unrecognised talent. You got another sup? <laughs> Why did his associate minister reject proposals to stop tobacco being sold near schools? Because, as I heard Ayesha Varel, ministers take a range of advice on a range of topics, and uh, she's free to do that. We have a clear pro program forward. We want to lower smoking rates across this country. We're going to do it with the existing legislation. Entry question. Why did his Associate Minister of Health reject proposals to raise the purchase age of tobacco to 25, given the advice from the Ministry of Health, quote, there is strong evidence that starting smoking after 25 is uncommon? Ministers take a range of advice on a range of topics. Oh, what about the... Coming out to question number three in the name of Dan Bedouin. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Finance. What recent reports has she seen on the cost of living? Mr Speaker, Kiwis are continuing to be hit by high inflation and high interest rates. According to Statistics New Zealand, inflation in New Zealand was higher last year than in the US, the UK, Australia, Canada, Japan and the European Union, which would suggest that claims made by previous governments that this was all a homegrown problem, uh, sorry, that this was all an international problem, uh, are not borne out by the data. Inflation is a big challenge. That's why we are taking urgent steps through our 100-day plan to beat inflation and rebuild New Zealand's economy. Supplementary. What impact has this inflation had on low-income people? Well, Mr Speaker, inflation is a thief in everyone's pocket but has hit our lowest-earning New Zealanders particularly hard. According to StatsNZ, living costs for low-income households, as measured by the Household Living Cost Price Index, rose by 20 per cent in just the three years between the end of 2020 and the end of 2023. That compared to growth of just 18 per cent over the whole nine years uh, that National was in government. So it's no surprise then that last week we learned that more children were growing up in material deprivation and poverty thanks to the last government's disastrous economic mismanagement. That's the price of labour, right. more tax, more spending and more families struggling with the cost of living. Just uh, supplementary. There is, a, there is a rule that says you don't use government supplementaries to attack a previous government and I will be very vigilant on that from this point on. Supplementary. Uh, what recent trends has she seen on inflation? Well, Mr Speaker, and good news for Kiwis at the checkout, food price data released earlier this month showed food prices are increasing at their slowest annual rate since 2021 at 4%. Wow. 
Compared to this time last year, there have been big drops in the price of tomatoes, Mr Hipkins, down 52%, and cheese, down 27%. But it's very early days. We know beating inflation won't be an easy fight, and that's why we're working hard in our 100-day plan to bring down costs on business, clear out the wasteful spending, and unblock the regulatory bottlenecks that are suffocating economic growth and putting more pressure on the price of everything. And we're not stopping after 100 days. There'll be plenty more coming after that. Supplementary. What actions is the government taking to support Kiwis with the cost of living? Well, Mr Speaker, just this week, the government is legislating to end the Auckland regional fuel tax. Yeah, yeah. Delivering Aucklanders relief at the pump from the start of July after years of being fleeced to pay for projects they don't want, like cycleways and speed bumps. And there will be more to say later this year on our plans to deliver tax relief for New Zealanders. But this is a fantastic early announcement to support Aucklanders with the cost of living and let them keep and spend more of their own money. Question number four. I have the Honourable Barbara Edmonds. Hello, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance. What advice, if any, has she received on the proportion of the budget operating allowance that will be required to meet cost pressures in Budget 2024? Honourable Nicola Willis. Mr Speaker, can I first congratulate uh, the member on the Honourable Member on her appointment as Opposition Finance Spokesperson? I look forward to our exchanges in this House. Uh, and I know that the, uh, that the member opposite has had enough experience in the Beehive to know that the calls on the budget operating allowance are both budget sensitive but also subject to change on a weekly, if not daily, basis. However, I am able to be helpful in saying to the member that I received Treasury's briefing to the incoming minister in November, uh, which has been released, as has the accompanying slide pack. And that slide pack contained a paragraph which stated, current budget allowances are expected to be sufficient to fund critical cost pressures only, with limited room for new spending in the absence of reprioritisations and savings. Mr Speaker, what's clear is that future budgets are under significant pressure because of the previous government's woeful fiscal and economic mismanagement. Good. Fortunately, Thank this you. government's committed to reprioritisation and savings. Supplementary. Barbara Evans. Is it correct that 79% of the new operating allowance in Budget 2023 was for cost pressures? And does she expect Budget 2024 will require a similar percentage to meet cost pressures? Well, Mr Speaker, the definition of cost pressure depends a little on who's doing the defining. So Mr Robertson would probably define the urgent need for more back office bureaucrats as a, as a, a cost pressure. I wouldn't see it the same way. Uh, so I'd be reluctant to endorse the figure that the member has used. However, what I would share with her is that what we know is that even before this government formed, the previous government had pre-committed 68% of this year's operating allowance. And we know that the sum of the fiscal cliffs they'd left behind at 7.2 billion would more than have evaporated the entire operating allowance before we funded another single cost pressure. Supplementary. Barbara Evans. So then, therefore, does she regret calling the money that has been set aside for cost pressures a buffer that could be used to pay for tax cuts if she cannot find other sources of revenue? That's right. That's right. Mr Speaker, I am 
both confident and happy about the fact that we have elected a coalition government that is doing the hard and essential work of reprioritising low-value spending across government. Because members opposite may have been happy that on their watch the amount spent on consultants and contractors boomed, the number of people hired in back office roles boomed, that there were low-value programmes. But our government makes no apologies for being on a drive to ensure that dollars spent go to frontline services, go to delivering on our commitments such as more police, and go to ensuring that New Zealanders can have more income in their back pockets. The Honourable David Seymour. Uh, would the minister's Right. Would the Minister's definition of cost pressures then uh, include discovering the books were nearly $2 billion short of funding the pharmaceuticals New Zealanders have been led to expect? Well, Mr Speaker, the, the member makes a very good point because we had a government that was prepared to short fund funding for essential pharmaceuticals, leaving a fiscal cliff that we as a responsible government are committed to filling. They managed to hide the commitments of the Crown from the books by doing that kind of time-limited funding, and that is a practice that we won't be continuing. Honourable Barbara Evans. In light of that answer, is she committed to meeting the cost pressures required to deliver core public services such as health and education? Yes, because our government is committed to frontline services and not backroom bureaucracy. Supplementary. Why, therefore, is she prioritising tax cuts over providing Kiwi kids with healthy classrooms they can learn in, <laughs> properly paid teachers, nurses and police, and the indexation of benefits to wage growth that will support our most vulnerable New Zealanders. It's not interesting. Well, Mr Speaker, the member's going to have to keep up with the changing position of her leader because this morning, as he detailed, he acknowledged that if he had been faced with the property situation inherited by our Minister of Education, then he too would have said, actually, that's not affordable, we've got to have to reassess it. Because that actually, as the member should know, is a responsible way to approach things. And what I can say about this government is that we want to ensure that we are delivering the classrooms needed for role growth, the schools needed for role growth, that we're ensuring that the school property program is well funded, that it delivers good value for money, that it's fair, that it's proportionate. And we're going to be doing that while at the same time ensuring there is funding for schools and for hospitals and by eliminating waste, tax reduction for working Kiwis. Right on, Winston Peters. Can I ask the Minister as to whether or not the... 55 million public interest journalism fund started in December 2020 and still existing now is a cost pressure and other, many other programs far more worthy than this woke stupidity. Just, um, just a moment. The Deputy Prime Minister raises... Just a moment. When questions are being asked, silence. Yes, you can ask it again. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. You're getting better at the job every day. Uh, could I ask the Minister of Finance as to whether or not the Public Interest Journalism Fund started in December 2020 and still going now, costing a colossal $55 million, is a cost pressure that could have been far more worthily spent on schools and hospitals and not some woke program supported by the other side? 
Well, well, Mr Speaker, the Deputy Prime Minister raises a very good point, which is that the outgoing government was extremely creative in their definition of cost pressures and essential spending. I, I well recall the COVID money that was used to fund consultants delivering a Three Waters plan. The COVID money used to rent offices to include those, COVID, those uh, Three Waters consultants in. So on the other side of the House, we have people who claim that everything is essential. Well, on this side of the House, we know the value of New Zealanders' money and we're going to ensure they get to keep a bit more of it. Thanks, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the concern I have here is that already you have pulled the minister up for using patsy questions to attack the government. In that instance, you waited till the end of the question, which fine, fair enough. But it was very clear, very early on, that that was the intent of that answer, and she wasn't pulled up. Yeah, well, I apologise for being a bit slow. Another point of order over here. One, uh, Mr. Speaker, just sort of noting that the Deputy Prime Minister appears to have a standing exemption from points from uh, standing orders. Speaking to the point of order, the first the first member that raised that point of order talked about patsy questions to attack the government. Now, surely he got that wrong, so therefore the second point of order must fail as well. Yeah, I'm not quite sure I follow that, but I, t I take you I take your point. No, I don't. I don't yeah, I will. I'll have a wee look. Yeah, yeah, good. Thank you. Uh, question number five, the Honourable James Shaw. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, to the Prime Minister, does he stand by all of his government's statements and actions? Uh, yes, I do, in the context they were given. Does he agree with Christopher Luxon, who said to the Blue-Greens conference in 2023 that, quote, national in-government will use the best scientific, financial and environmental uh, information available to us to chart a responsible, fair and sustainable way forward on environmental matters, end quote. And if so, how is this consistent with proposals for the new fast-track consenting uh, process for permits to be approved by ministers rather than expert panels? Uh, yes, I do. I do stand by those statements I made earlier. Does he stand by his statement that, quote, this is a government that's going to be focused on lowering emissions and making sure that we meet our climate change commitments, end quote, and if so, can he rule out supporting any new fossil fuel projects such as the Takuha coal mine in the proposed fast-track legislation? Well, we're going to be a government that's going to deliver on our emissions commitments and also grow our economy. We're not going to turn off growth opportunities and sectors across this country when we've had three, three of the last four quarters left to us by the previous government in decline. Can he rule out supporting any new fossil fuel projects such as the Takuha coal mine in the proposed fast-track legislation? Well, we have, we have been on the record to say that we actually want to overturn the oil and gas ban because we need gas as a transitory energy source as we make the transition to clean, green energy going forward. Can he rule out supporting any new fossil fuel projects such as the Takuha coal mine in the proposed fast-track legislation? I'll just say to you, no projects have been brought forward to Cabinet yet. How? Speaker. Uh, let him finish his, uh, his run. Uh, point of order. Point of order. Speaker, with respect, I mean, the, uh, the, this, that questioner has had his primary question and three following questions, mm -hmm. and somebody raises to the feet to try and make this thing more factual. 
and doesn't get a chance to get his point away before the next question is given to that side. Yeah, but I can't know that because I haven't heard your question, but I'm here against first. Quest for the last oh, question. Yes, yes, good. Okay. James Shaw. <clears throat> How will he, uh, as the Prime Minister, ensure that any potential conflicts of interest for the listed projects that are proposed to be approved by ministers are raised and discussed to meet expectations in the Cabinet Manual? Again, we have not had fast-track consenting legislation come before the Cabinet and it has not yet been discussed. Uh, what we have is a, a very good process to make sure we're managing potential conflicts of interest, real or perceived. Uh, we have clear processes around that that make sure that we're compliant with the Cabinet Manual. Right Honourable Minister. questions? Has the Prime Minister and his government considered the fact that there is a preference in using New Zealand coal rather than to be importing inferior Indonesian coal, which was the practice of the former government? Yes, you did. Call out. Question number uh, six. Honourable Dr Ashavero. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Associate Minister of Health and asks, does she stand by all her statements and actions? Sorry, just do your question again. Does she stand by all her statements and actions? Mr Speaker, yes, in particular my statements and I'm absolutely committed to the smoke-free 2025 targets and to providing practical targeted help so that smokers who are addicted to nicotine can stop. Supplementary, in that, was she advised by officials that repealing the 2022 amendments to the Smoke-Free Environments and Regulated Products Act would mean that the smoke-free goal would not be met until 2061. Mr Speaker, I've received a range of advice from officials and we're continuing to develop good legislation and programmes to achieve the smoke-free 2025 targets. Point of order, Mr Speaker, it was a very simple question. Uh, was she advised, yes or no? You, you can't ask for a yes or no question, answer. Well, I think it was addressed by saying that the range of advice was sought. I know you don't think that, but I'm in here and you're not. So, <laughs> um, Dr. Verrill. Dr. Verrill. Was the minister advised by officials that repealing the 2022 amendments to the Smoke-Free Environments and Related Regulated Products Act would mean that the goal was not reached until 2061. Repetition. Mr Speaker, as I said, I've received a range of advice. Some of that advice was based on statistical data that was not current. And in the last three years, we have seen 219,000 people have stopped smoking with vaping playing a key role Importantly, 79,000 of those who stopped smoking, 36% of those who quit were Māori. And we are now receiving statistics where that we have a smoking rate of 6.8% of New Zealanders daily smoking, which is down from the 8.6%, which was one of the statistics that that data was based upon. When she was advised that repealing... Uh, Sorry, how does she justify repealing the 2022 amendments to the Smoke-Free Environments and Re Regulated Products Act when she, that she, when she was advised that that, would, that bill would substantially close the difference in life expectancy between Māori and non-Māori? 
Mr Speaker, we were absolutely committed to achieving the smoke-free targets and we are going to implement systems that target addicted smokers and not generalist virtue signalling approaches that are unproven. To the Minister, has she received reports on the tobacco black market? Mr Speaker, there has already been a substantial black market for cigarettes and crime attached to tobacco retailing and customs are seeing a high volume of seizures of tobacco, both large and small, and through multiple channels and an increase in large seizures. It is noted that, this mem that the previous government invested $10 million in the 2022 budget for a dedicated tobacco enforcement team in customs, and we will continue with Labor's unworkable woke virtue signalling plans for this experimental prohibition regime will make this problem even worse. Speaker, why does she refuse to be interviewed on why she is repealing a law that would save $5 billion in health costs, and don't New Zealanders deserve to know the answer to that? What media? What media? Mr Speaker, I have been interviewed on numerous occasions on this issue, and I am looking forward to having media interviews on the effective legislation and regulations that we will introduce to ensure that people who are addicted to nicotine smoking will have the tools to quit and that youth voting will decline. Rebel Radio, Rebel Radio. Question number seven in the name of Debbie Nauru-Wapaka. Tēnā koe My question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by all of his government, government's policies and actions? Uh, yes, in the context they were given. Supplementary. How can he justify introducing legislation to abolish Te Akawhaiora two days before the Waitangi Tribunal's urgent hearing into Te Akawhaiora, when his government has known since January 19 that an inquiry was set to take place? Uh, because we opposed it from its very conception. We spoke about it extensively in opposition and opposed it in opposition. We campaigned on it in the election campaign and we put it into our 100-day plan as part of a new government forming a new government. It's been very well signalled that we do, we, do not, we do not believe that bureaucracy is the way in which we drive better health outcomes for Māori. Not democracy either. Supplementary. Does he agree that by ignoring the tribunal's request to introduce legislation to abolish Te Akawaiora after the inquiry has been completed, his government is bypassing judicial process and oversight? No, the tribunal will again have the jurisdiction to consider a claim after the legislation comes into effect. But we have been very, very clear in our opposition to the Māori Health Authority. We do not believe it's the way in which we deliver better health outcomes for Māori, period. Supplementary. How can he justify dismantling the Māori Health Authority in the same week as repealing smoke-free legislation when Māori die seven years earlier on average than non-Māori and smoking is our leading cause, cause of premature death? We have seen tremendous uh, halving of, of smoking rates amongst Māori from memory, something like 37% down to 16% in the space of a decade under the legislation that we are supporting and putting back into, into law. So we're going to continue to drive smoking rates down for Māori and for non-Māori, and we're going to continue to get better health outcomes for Māori by using local iwi providers, localism and devolution, not centralisation and control, and I thought that member would appreciate that. Supplementary, the Honourable David Seymour. 
Is the Prime Minister trying to say that New Zealand is not actually governed by the Waitangi Tribunal, but instead by a government elected by the people at democratic elections? Yeah, well, that was a really interesting statement. We'll move on to another supplementary. Supplementary. Does he consider a government's use of urgency to progress a political agenda without public scrutiny to be an abuse of the democratic process? We, we, in opposition, we oppose the Māori Health Authority from its very conception. We have opposed it in opposition. We went to the election campaign and said we would dismantle it. We formed a government. Within a matter of days, we had a 100-day plan to dismantle it. 49 actions in 100 days. That's what we're doing. Point of order. Do we know Rungu Pekka? Just to to Pekka. Um, the question was uh, the use of urgency. Oh, sorry. Are oh, you raising your yes. point of order? Yeah, thank sorry. you. Uh, order. My question was uh, addressing the use of urgency, not the campaigning spiel. It was to address, was the promise in the 100 day to utilise the use of urgency? That's the question that was asked. Well, OK. Uh, the Prime Minister doesn't have direct responsibility for the use of urgency. The government may move it, but the House decides. So if the Prime Minister may want to make a comment, but the question is not quite in line with uh, no. uh, the, the primary. Oh. As I've said before, it's, entirely well, it's been incredibly well signalled by our government that we want to dismantle the Māori Health Authority. Why? Because we believe in actually delivering better health outcomes for Māori. We're going to do it in a different way. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Point of order, right on with Chris Hipkins. just wanted to check with you whether the rules around uh, talking on cell phones in the debating chamber have... Uh, changed, uh, or whether, in fact, the tobacco lobby should wait until after question time to contact the Deputy Prime Minister with their feedback. Now, I, um, I just think... Um, point of order. Speaker, Speaker, that's a disgraceful insinuation, especially for somebody who's going to be out of this house within a few weeks. <laughs> but the real point is, now I was pursuing a lawyer that acted illegally, and I'm going to make sure I win against them. That's what the phone call is about. Sorry? No, you can't use cell phones now. Um, question, question number eight, Ricardo Mendes March. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Just wait. Just wait. Good. When are we, we all settled? Carry on. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Social Development and Employment and Asks. Does she agree with the Deputy Chief Executive of MSD who told the Social Services and Community Committee, quote, they do not get punished. That's unfair. They do not get sanctions. They do not get sanctioned. They do not get sanctions for not coming to our work seminars, end quote. If so, will she commit to ensuring people do not face sanctions for not attending work seminars? Honourable, Honourable Penny Simmons. I thank the member for his question, Mr Speaker, and on behalf of the Minister and in answer to the first question, yes, because the discussion at Select Committee on this topic was incomplete as the committee abruptly adjourned and MSD made clear in a later answer to the committee that those who failed to turn up to work, work seminars can be sanctioned. I understand that MSD thought the member's question at Select Committee referred to 
job expos and work seminars. To clarify, job expos do not automatically result in a sanction for non-attendance. For the vast majority of job seekers, attendance is encouraged and voluntary. In some circumstances, MSD will require attendance at expos, which can result in a sanction. To answer the member's second question, no. This government has reset the welfare system's expectations, including applying sanctions where job seekers refuse to comply with their obligations. We expect job seekers to attend work seminars as part of the reasonable steps they must take to become work ready and find work. Ricardo Mendes March. Why is she able to quantify how many people get sanctioned for missing work obligations, such as failing to attend work seminars, but she can't quantify how many people enter employment as a direct result of engaging with work obligations? Mr. Speaker, the, uh, the information is collated on an individual basis. So those that att attend uh, work seminars will then have noted in their files whether they got employment from it or not. But MSD doesn't collate or let information up and have one source of information about how many got into employment from attending job seminars. How then can she be confident that the work obligations she wants to impose on people will help them get into jobs when she can't show any evidence of these work seminars meaningfully supporting people into stable, secure employment? Mr Speaker, there are 190,000 people on JobSeeker benefits. That's 70,000 increase under Labor. So clearly, nothing was working previously. And it behoves us to ensure that we try a variety of means to assist people into employment, including work seminars, including job expos. And as I explained in my previous answer, that information about whether attending a work seminar got someone into employment is kept for that individual. It's just not collated up across the country. How can she be confident that work seminars support people into employment when the people in charge of running them could not be upfront with select committee members about the consequences of not attending these seminars? And she is refusing to present evidence on whether they support people into employment. Uh, Mr Speaker, I don't believe that uh, the people were refusing or uh, misleading in any way. Uh, they made it very clear that they had misunderstood the question at Select Committee, that they thought it was, was both job expos and work seminars. And uh, Mr Speaker, we know that the uh, job uh, seminars do assist people in getting into employment. We know that it helps with it helps with getting their CVs together. It helps with uh, learning uh, interview techniques, and we know that, for example, at a recent seminar in the top of the South Island, 82 Kiwi job seekers turned up, and 64 received interviews from that. Will she commit to reporting outcomes of these work seminars? And if not, why not? Uh, 
Mr Speaker, as I uh, explained, those outcomes are reported and are recorded on an individual basis. They are just not collated right across the country. So on an individual basis, someone turning up to a work seminar, it will be recorded whether it was successful in supporting them into employment or not. If these outcomes are not collected nationally, how does she know that forcing people to attend work seminars to avoid facing sanctions is supporting people into meaningful, secure employment? Mr Speaker, we know that there's a range of things that have to be done to assist the 190,000 people to have a really good chance to get into employment. And obviously things like getting uh, help in putting CVs together, getting help in interview techniques, getting help with getting their driver's licence. All those things assist towards it. We know that the fact that an extra 70,000 going on to the Job Seeker benefit since the previous government was in power has meant that it hasn't worked. So we should be trying every single thing we can to assist people into employment. Question number nine, Member Paulo Garcia. Mr. Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Justice. What recent announcements has the government made about restoring law and order? Honourable Paul Goldsmith. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. On Sunday, the government announced a raft of measures aimed at addressing harm caused by gangs. Gangs' insignia will be banned from public display. Gang gatherings will be disrupted by police-issued dispersal notices. And gang associates separated by court-issued non-consorting orders. And finally, we are giving greater weight to gang membership as an aggravating factor at sentencing. This government is serious about restoring law and order. Supplementary. Supplementary, Paula Garcia. Why is addressing the harm caused by gangs important? Well, Mr. Speaker, because gangs cause serious harm. They spread violence, deal in drugs, and create intergenerational drama. For too long, they have been allowed to behave as if they're above the law. They are not. Supplementary. Supplementary, Paula Garcia. What statistics has he seen on law and order in New Zealand? Uh, well, Mr Speaker, in the past five years, gangs have recruited more than 3,000 new members and there have been a significant escalation in gang-related violence, public intimidations and shootings. Violent crime has increased by 33%. Gangs play a significant part in this. Honourable Dr Duncan Webb. What is the purpose of his non-consorting orders when sections 112 to 123 of the Sentencing Act already have a comprehensive framework for non-association orders? Uh, well, the purpose of the non-consorting uh, legislation is to stop uh, serious gang offenders uh, meeting with particular other serious gang offenders to create crimes. And that is a, a piece of legislation that we've learnt uh, from uh, some of the Australian states and it's making a real impact on disrupting uh, the gang activity. So the real purpose, Mr Speaker, is to make it more difficult for the gangs to operate effectively in this country. Paulo Garcia. What impact will the ban of gang insignia in public places have on freedom of expression? 
Ah, well, Mr. Speaker, it will have an impact on gangs' freedom to intimidate and create fear, Mr. Speaker. Gang members want all the rights of being a New Zealander, but none of the responsibility that comes with it. Expressing fear and intimidation is not a form of expression that this government supports. Supplementary. Dr. Duncan Webb. What is the purpose of his reforms around the sentencing of gang members when Section 9 of the Sentencing Act already makes it clear that being a gang member is an aggravating factor? Well, the, the purpose of this legislative change is to uh, also remove the need for a connection between being a gang member and that specific uh, crime that has been caused, because we want to make the broader point that being a gang membership has an impact on the overall uh, well-being of this country in terms of law and order. And the other point of it is this very simple idea that a government, a, 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 a political party would campaign in opposition to do something and when elected, they do it. And that's what we're doing in this legislation. Supplementary. Paulo Garcia. How are the commitments to restore law and order progressing as outlined in the government's 100-day plan? Uh, well, thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. This government is making excellent progress. Uh, we've abolished the prison target reduction. Uh, we're stopping taxpayer funding for Section 27 reports. We'll soon introduce legislation to implement our package to tackle gangs. And my colleague, Minister McKee, will have further announcements to make on restoring law order very soon, Mr. Speaker. Honourable uh, Nicole McKee. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. How would incorporating gang affiliation as an aggravating factor during sentencing enhance the safety of our communities throughout New Zealand? Well, uh, Mr Speaker, by giving greater weight to gang membership as an aggravating factor in sentencing courts, we'll be able to impose more serious punishments onto an individual who has an association with gangs. We're restoring serious consequences for crime and delivering on our commitments to set out as in the coalition agreement between both ACT and New Zealand First and the National Party. Question number 10, the name of the Honourable Penny Henry. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Minister of Health. Does he stand by all his statements and actions? The Honourable thank Dr. you, Mr Henry. Speaker. Yes, in the context they were given. Does he stand by his answer regarding the repeal of the Māori Health Authority, quote, will take on board all discussions and all dialogue from all parties, end quote. And if so, why did his government bring forward the disestablishment of the Māori Health Authority by passing the urgent inquiry by the Waitangi Tribunal? Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. We'll always remain open to any dialogue from any parties and from any citizens from Māori, from anyone who wants to help us advance the cause of Māori health outcomes. <laughs> why then could the Minister's bill not wait two more days for the urgent claim to be heard by the Waitangi Tribunal, or is it this government's intention to avoid the Waitangi Tribunal on all matters? Uh, thank you. Mr Speaker, the Waitangi Tribunal will still be able to critique the legislation uh, after, after enablement, and so uh, we're very, very comfortable with the position that we've taken. What we've also wanted to do is give some surety to staff with the, the Māori Health Authority so that they can see a vision and a pathway forward. Does the Minister accept that this government's breach of Te Tiriti o Waitangi will lead to further claims before the Tribunal and further court litigation, or will he just simply do the right thing and remove his bill? Mr Speaker, what I accept is that we will involve Māori in the monitoring and the delivery of health services to improve Māori health outcomes. 
Question number 11. Hmm? Point of order. Your question. Oh, OK. There you go. <laughs> Does the Minister accept that given the Maori Health Authority did not exist until two years ago, the abolition of it cannot possibly be a breach of the treaty? Uh, Mr Speaker, what, what, I, what, I accept, what I accept is, as the member says, that the Maori Health Authority has been challenged so and we seek be, to uh, do a better job with Maori health outcomes. Yeah, I should have been a bit quicker there. That, that, um, that question did seek an opinion that's outside of the Minister's uh, scope of, of responsibility. Um, Oh my gosh. Question number 11, in the name of Katie Nimon. Mr. Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Education and asks what recent announcements has she made about school property? Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, yesterday I announced a ministerial inquiry into the Ministry of Education's school property function. This review will address the challenges the Ministry of Education face in not being able to deliver the current pipeline of school infrastructure projects. In particular, the failure to sufficiently implement a value-for-money approach, schools have ex having expectations beyond what could be delivered on and significant cost escalations. It is important to understand why these challenges have emerged in recent years to ensure we can deliver the school property our children deserve. I want to ensure that school property, the school, school property portfolio is meeting the core infrastructure needs of schools. Supplementary. Why is this inquiry needed? Mr Speaker, the Coalition Government has inherited a pipeline of projects that were unable to be delivered on. In September 2023, the Ministry of Education began a review of property projects. In January, I was informed that up to 350 projects needed to be reviewed for cost effectiveness. By their own admission, the Ministry have advised me that these challenges are due to building cost increases, but also due to scope creep and over-reliance on bespoke designs and over-engineering add-ons like extensive landscaping and infrastructure. A ministerial inquiry will consider how we can best achieve a portfolio that is managed efficiently and effectively and delivers cost-effective learning spaces that are functional, warm, dry and fit for purpose. Supplementary. What has she heard from principals since she announced the inquiry? Mr Speaker, I have been talking with principals about their property concerns since the day I became the minister. Since this announcement, I have already received reports that principals are welcoming this inquiry. On RNZ this morning, Vaughan Coolio of the Secondary Principals Association, SPANS, said that principals are really pleased that the minister has listened to the sector. I also received communication from a school board member saying I would like to applaud the minister for undertaking the, min for undertaking the Ministry of Education property review. It is badly needed and overdue. Supplementary. Uh, the Honourable Chancellor. Will the inquiry into school property she announced yesterday look at the cuts the previous national government made into school property and the subsequent impact on school property if assets? If not, why not? Well, Mr Speaker, I think it's brave of that member to ask a question. Given that this morning on air she said that uh, all of the properties uh, in, in her portfolio, uh, where she was the minister, were funded and factored into the budget, just uh, a mere hours later her leader had to... Uh, correct her and say that he would not guarantee absolutely uh, every single one of them. He would probably have also asked his officials to rescope the work. Lamentary. Point, point of order. Uh, Mr Speaker, we waited till the end in the hope that there would be any attempt to address the question that was certainly responded to, but not addressed. 
well, you've also got to accept that that was a politically motivated question and somewhat loaded, and therefore there's a high degree of leniency in the way it's answered. Um, I, Katie Nevin. What can schools expect while the inquiry is underway? Mr Speaker, I received an email from a principal today whose uh, build was supposed to start in July last year and has been delayed. She stated, all we want in this community is good, clear communication and a pathway forward. I have made it clear to the Ministry of Education my expectation for schools is to receive timely and accurate information about their projects in the coming weeks. While the inquiry is underway, I will be working with the Ministry to find solutions for schools facing critical pressures in role growth, condition and compliance. I want to be clear that school property is a priority for this government and our inquiry will ensure that we deliver cost-effective, warm, dry classrooms to as many schools as possible. The Honourable Chancellor. Will she guarantee no cuts to school property capital expenditure? Yes. Question number 12, in the name of uh, Grant McCallum. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister for the Environment. What recent announcements has she made regarding the clean up of old landfill sites? Honourable Penny Simmons. Mr Speaker, on Saturday I had the pleasure of announcing that the government is granting $6.6 million to clean up four historic New Zealand landfill and dump sites which are vulnerable to extreme weather events and coastal erosion. The contaminated site remediation fund grants will go towards fixing former landfills and dump sites. Supplementary. Why is it important that these sites are remediated? Uh, Mr Speaker, these sites are in low-lying coastal areas and near river margins, leaving them at risk of being compromised by storm surges, rainfall events, high river levels and flooding. This funding will address the risk of the sites being breached by a natural event, exposing waste materials and contaminating the surrounding land and waterways. Historic landfills can become a threat to communities and the environment through the effects of extreme weather events. The government supports local government to deal with the legacy of land contaminated by past practices, directing funds each year to sites considered regional priorities. This funding will help restore these contaminated sites so they no longer pose a risk to communities and the environment. Supplementary. What specific projects have been funded as a result of the Contaminated Sites Remediation Fund? Well, starting in Southland, the Blue Cliffs land site is situated on a former gravel pit located within Te Waiwai Bay. Coastal tides and the Waiau River mouth flooding have eroded parts of the site and surrounding areas. That council has been granted $1.35 for its remediation. The St Andrews Beach landfill project will focus on developing a remediation plan led by Environment Canterbury. They have been granted 135,000 towards this planning project. Nelson City Council is leading to a remediation project after sawdust contaminated with arsenic and other chemicals were exposed by erosion in a car park at Tahunanui Beach in June 2023. That council has been granted 134,000 towards the planning of this project. And finally, Gisborne District Council 
Council is receiving $4.98 million to develop a remediation plan and carry out remediation works at the former Tokumaru Bay landfill. The retired land site area is really susceptible good. for flooding. What about your table? Sorry, just, that's it. Enough? Yeah, well and truly. <laughs> Su supplementary. What else is the Ministry for the Environment doing to help local communities with historic landfills? Mr Speaker, the, is now, uh, the Ministry is now working with regional councils to refine the assessment tool and use it to evaluate landfills that not, have not yet been assessed. These assessments will help councils make decisions on how to manage the risk associated with the vulnerable landfills and contaminated sites, such as reducing the level of contamination, better containing the sites or removing the contents of landfills. And I wish to thank the Ministry and councils up and down the country for their continued work in this space. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the Contaminated Sites Remediation Fund be spared the 6.5 to 7.5 per cent funding cuts? Thank you, Mr Speaker. The remedial um, contamination fund will be used in the way that it's going to be best used to help the environmental and community outcomes of this country and that the uh, 6.5 to 7.5 is being concentrated as we have been asked to on the backroom functions, not on the funding that we get out to the grassroots where the work is being done. That uh, concludes oral questions.